So before we go to Revelation, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 83. And it's going to give us an understanding of why things are going on the way they are right now in its relation to Israel, okay? So Psalm 83, and we're just going to start in verse 1. Psalm 83, verse 1. And this is the Psalm of Asaph, worship leader. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you and have raised their heads, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. And then uh, it goes on to list some of the nations and all that uh, had risen up and were rising up against Israel. What we need to understand is what we're seeing happening today is not about having enough land or having a two-nation two settlement or anything like that. It is the obliteration of the Jewish people, the obliteration of Israel, okay? It has always been the plans of Satan to ruin and destroy the work of God. If we see it in the garden. We see Jesus teach that he is the, the thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy, and we see it in the book of Revelation when he is cast down to the earth and in his anger and fury, realizing that there's just a little time left, he does everything he can to cause as much destruction and mayhem and hurt as many people as possible because the time is short. We forget that this is a natural world and a supernatural world that we live in. All right. So from the very beginning... Satan has been at enmity with God and sought to destroy the plans of God and will continue to fight God and the people of God until Jesus finally throws him into the lake of fire. We'll see that this morning, okay? So there's a lot that we don't think about as far as us living in a supernatural realm, all right? But go ahead and turn over to the book of Revelation. This is a book that a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, and a lot of Christians stay clear of. And I grew up in the church, and I heard people say, well, you just, you really, you can't be certain about the book of Revelation. Well, you know, it's just confusing. And my question for that is, why is it called the Revelation then? Right? If it's confusing and we can't understand it, why is it a Revelation? Revelations reveal things, right? In Greek, it's called the apocalypse. All right. Now, when I first heard apocalypse, all right, I thought of the movie Apocalypse Now. And then anytime you see the word apocalypse, it's zombie apocalypse or, you know, a, a meteor is going to hit the earth or things like that. And we think apocalypse and we think bad news and destruction. Well, there is destruction in the book of Revelation, but the word apocalypse 
is Greek and it means the unveiling, the revelation. Okay? So this is to reveal the things that God is going to do in the last days. All right? And as it begins, John says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? In this book, we see Jesus in a way we do not really see in the Gospels. Okay? In Revelation, we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming with his robe dipped in blood and a sword in his mouth and the armies of heaven. And we see glory and power and majesty and fearsomeness. But in the midst of all that, here's just a little bit of trivia for you. Jesus referred to the lion as the lion only once in the book of Revelation. All the other times he's referred to figuratively, he's the lamb. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Okay? So here's a little bit of history so we can get our mind around this and see how God has been moving and is moving today. All right? Last week, we talked about how there was the, um, uh, under Emperor Hadrian, he sought to obliterate all memory of the Jewish people and Israel. So he changed the name of Israel to Palestine from the Philistines that used to live in the, in the region and still did in the Gaza area a little bit at that time. So he was seeking to obliterate all memory of the Jews and of Israel. Okay, And the diaspora came. And Jews were scattered all over the world. And for centuries, despite being scattered everywhere, there was always a remnant of Jews in Israel. Okay? During that time, they suffered a lot of persecution. And Jews throughout the world suffered persecution. In the 19th century, latter part of the 19th century, the Russian pogroms, and those were where the government, the police, the communities would rise up and go into the Jewish communities and just cause havoc. They were abusive. They, were, they would kill them, torture them. Uh, they, were, they were just horrible to the Jewish people. And there was also a lot of stuff going on throughout the rest of the world toward the Jewish people. So during the 19th century, the Jews were going, you know what? We need a homeland. We need a place of our own so we're not, we're not being persecuted anymore. And so World War I comes into play. Now, prior to World War I, there were Jews that were leaving Russia and other places in Eastern Europe and going into Israel to these little, little kibbutzes that were established and been there for a while and setting up new ones to try to make a new life. And what ended up happening was in 1917, there was something called the Balfour Declaration, okay? What this was, was that England was wanting to expand its empire, but it was really under a lot of pressure uh, during the war. They weren't able to really move forward with it because the United States had just entered into it in April of 1917. 
England had already been involved with it for a couple of years. And Russia, who was supposed to be an ally, was in the middle of the Bolshevik Revolution. Communism, okay, on the rise. So England had a problem. And there was a member of parliament that was a Zionist Jew. And he said, hey, let's do this. Let's put together a declaration to pursue a homeland for the Jewish people. And what this will do is it'll give a place where there's no discrimination and there's safety for the Jewish people, and it will rally support. Right now I'm reading a book called Lioness. It's about uh, Golda Meir. And you may not know this, but Golda Meir was, uh, she grew up in Milwaukee, okay? And then went to Denver and back to Milwaukee and then to Israel. Um, she was a prime minister, very, very prominent figure in uh, Israeli politics. But during that time, there was this idea in Europe that the American Jews were very, very affluent, very influential, and had a lot of power. Well, they didn't. Some did. But as a whole, they didn't. They were just trying to you know, get a life together that they could scratch out here in the States like so many other immigrants. But England decided to go ahead and do the Balfour Declaration to get primarily American Jewish support to motivate the United States to be more active in the war effort, okay? After the war was over, things just kind of dragged along. So you have this declaration, you have this promise being made, but nothing's happening, and so along comes Hitler and the Holocaust. And so when the six million Jews were murdered during World War II, that opened up the heart of the world for the Jewish people. The Balfour Declaration was already in place and they were able to pursue the nation of Israel. May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. Now, this is important because prior to this, when people read the book of Revelation and the scriptures as a whole, okay, it didn't make sense. Israel's not a nation anymore. There is no temple to be defiled. How does this work? So you got this thing called replacement theology, where the church is actually Israel. No, it's not, okay? So if you don't understand something Bible-wise, don't try to put something there that's not. Just leave it alone, and when God is ready to reveal it, he'll take care of it. You know, that's one of my, my archaeological, uh, my biblical archaeology professors taught us. Just because you haven't found it yet, if the Bible says it happened and it's there, it's there. Okay, so just wait. You'll find it. And it shows itself to be the case time and time again. So here it is. 1948, Israel becomes a nation. And the time clock has kicked into high gear. In the last 75 years, we have seen things happen with Israel and with the world and technology that allow the things of revelation to take place. Okay. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about some things, but I will be pretty certain on some things, okay? 
And we can understand. This is made for us to understand. And right now we're seeing things happen with this whole issue of the war uh, with Gaza right now and Hamas. As we're watching things that could be, I say could be, precursors to Ezekiel 38 and 39 with the war of Gog and Magog where Magog, Russia, you know, it's probably that region, all right? And Iran and other countries around uh, Israel put together a treaty to take out Israel. We are watching Iran back Hamas and Hezbollah. We are watching Russia give Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon anti-aircraft weaponry uh, through the, um, the Wagner Group, okay? It's their, their mercenary army. It's technically not the Russian army, but it's the Russian army, okay? So they're working together. We're seeing this in the news. And the nations around, I mean, missiles coming in from Yemen toward Israel. There's a lot of stuff going on. And Jesus tells us, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, you know that summer is near when you see the, the trees budding. Know that when you see these things, the end is near. The time is near. And I think it is. Okay? So, one of the things that's also important about this book is it's the only one that specifically tells us you're blessed if you read it, hear it, and do it. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That means I'm going to be blessed today. And blessed are those who hear. That means you're going to be blessed today. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Okay? And people have said, no, this, this has already taken place in the past. No, it hasn't. It couldn't have. Okay? And we'll see that in some of the language that's used. But also, it just, the world's never been in a place where it could happen. Also, in verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us, the things that must soon take place. So people say, well, you got to understand that it was soon to take place. So this stuff all happened during the time of John and all. Well, during the time that John wrote this, there wasn't a temple to be defiled, okay? You can't set up an image in the temple when there is no temple. So it doesn't make sense. The word here for soon means in quick succession, all right? And so when we see 1948 happen and Israel becomes a nation, all of a sudden we're in a place for the things to start clicking and happening just one after the other, and they have been. To understand the layout of the book of Revelation, we see it in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, the present time for, for John, and those that are to take place after this, okay? The things that are, the church age, we'll see that in chapters 2 and 3, and the things that are to come after that, all right? Now, 
in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're familiar with the passages about the seven churches of Asia, okay? Each church was a real church at the time that Peter was, I mean, that John was writing this, all right? And the conditions that Jesus is calling them out at were really happening. That being said, they also correspond to periods of church history. They also correspond to different Christians' lives. Okay? You have people who are like Ephesus, who they do a lot for the Lord, but they're not really spending time with them, connecting with them, or anything like that. The church today is the church of Laodicea. It's lukewarm. It's embracing things that it shouldn't embrace. And in chapter 3, at the end of that chapter, there's a passage that we hear said so often at altar calls and things like this. It's verse 20 of chapter 3. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And people go, see, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking, wanting to come into your life. That's not what it says. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking to a church that is messed up. And he's on the outside knocking and saying, hey, I want to come in. I want to fellowship with you. I want to be connected with you. I'm standing at the door knocking, Laodicea. I want to come in. But they weren't having it. They were lukewarm. They were a weak church, but they thought they were so strong. They were a wealthy church monetarily, and Jesus said they were absolutely impoverished spiritually. And you look at the church today, that is so much the case. I heard about a church that had a meeting uh, a person I know uh, um, uh, is familiar with, with the church. And the elders of the church got together and the leadership got together to discuss how to compromise their stances on things in order to attract more people. What's up with that? How do you compromise the word of God and the person of Christ because you want more people? That's like trying to get more people onto a bus that you are deliberately driving over a cliff. Why on earth? But we don't have Christ at the center of the church in so many occasions today. That's serious business. And Paul told Timothy, in the last days, people are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear, make them feel good, but the whole time giving them garbage. And we see that today. So those are the things that are. That's the church age. That's today, okay? The things that are to come begin in chapter 4. Now, here's just a little bit of info. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you 
what must take place after this, okay? Now, some people believe that this is an allusion to the rapture, okay? Because after, after chapter 3 is done, we don't see the church as being focused on until the marriage supper of the Lamb, okay? We see it in heaven, but we don't see Jesus dealing with it on the earth. It's all Israel. This is where the shift happens, and Israel becomes the focal point again. All right? So it's what must take place after this. So for those who say this stuff already happened back, you know, like when the temple was destroyed or Antiochus Epiphanes when he put, had a pig slaughtered in the temple and stuff, no. This says this stuff has to take place, future, okay? Now, here's another thing. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 12, when the two witnesses are raised from the dead, this is what is told to them when they are taken up into heaven for all to see visibly. Come up here. Now, I'm not going to be emphatic and say this is the rapture, but I will say this. I do believe that the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation. Because scripture tells us and shows us that God does not put his people through his wrath. Jesus promised us that in this world we would have tribulation, right? It's different from having tribulation from the world as opposed to tribulation coming from God upon the world. God pulled Noah and his family out before he judged the world. God pulled Lot and his family out before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God will pull us out. The word says that he has not appointed us for wrath, okay? I grew up thinking that we would go through the tribulation because I listened to a lot of European pastors and martyrs and all, and they went through tribulation, and it made sense. But then it was pointed out to me, who's doing the tribulation? Is it man toward us or God toward man? God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. That was the discussion Abraham and God had about about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham wanted to know if God was going to pull Lot and his family out before he wiped out the cities, and he did. So this is where we make the shift and we go into heaven, okay? In chapter uh, 4, verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The 24 elders are probably the church, a symbol of the church, okay? They wear crowns. Now, some people have said, no, they're angels. Well, the word here for crown is not a kingly crown like Jesus has, okay, a diadem. It's a victor's crown, which Paul talks about when we run the race, okay? We do it to receive an eternal crown, a victor's crown. And so that's the type of crown that's being talked about here. And they're worshiping the Lord and they're praising him for salvation. So 
going on down to chapter 5, then we have the scroll. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel, and no one in heaven or on earth or under earth, oh, I'm sorry, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion, that's the only place you're going to see it, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Okay, he's the one that comes before David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. The horns are his power. The eyes are the Holy Spirit. And so here's Jesus. What's the scroll? You can't say for certain. But a lot of people think that it's basically God's last will and testament, okay? The reason for this is because a Roman will was sealed with seven seals, all right? Jesus is the only one who can open the scroll because he's the, he's the, the testator, basically. It's his will. And he has the right to open it because he has died. So a lot of people think that this is God's settlement of accounts with the world. And I think that's probably a good idea. Um, I won't be emphatic about it. But Jesus, the lion who is the lamb, alone has the authority to open the scroll. And as he does, and he opens each of the seals the judgments of God begin to happen upon the world. Chapter 6, it has the four horsemen of the apocalypse, a white horse, okay, and it's given to him. A bow and a crown was given to him. That crown is a diadem, okay, different type. And he came out conquering and to conquer. This is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist, okay, Nobody has to give Jesus the authority to conquer. He is the conqueror. This is given to the Antichrist for a time. Then you have the red horse, war, black, famine, and the pale horse, death, through famine, war, and pestilence. And these things come upon the earth. Now, chapter 7, we have 144,000 of Israel sealed. These are Jews, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you they are Jehovah's Witnesses, the upper echelon of the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, they're not. Just in case we're not sure about that, it gives how many from every tribe right here, okay? And so, you know, I've, I've known people who've talked to, to Jehovah's Witnesses and, and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm 144,000. It's like, well, what tribe do you belong to? What? What tribe do you belong to? Because you have to be a Jew to be 144,000. And you look at this and you go, well, wait a minute. Later in Revelation, we're told that these are the first fruits to Christ. 
and to God. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of the greatest revival that will ever happen. We see this in verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Going down to verse 14, one of the elders says, you know, do you know who these are? John's like, no, I don't. I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So the 144,000 are going to see, they are actually, they hang with Jesus. They stay with Jesus and they are evangelists during this time. They are proclaiming the gospel. Now, later on, we see in Revelation that there is also an angel during this last part of the tribulation who flies through their heavens proclaiming the gospel. And there is a second angel that is crying out, woe to Babylon, the, the false religion that was set up and the city that was set up because it fell. And there's a third angel that goes throughout the world and is saying, that if anybody takes the mark of the beast, they will suffer the full wrath of God, just like the beast. Oh, my word. So the gospel is going out during this time. This is the last push to bring people to Christ, to bring Israel back to Messiah and to Jesus. Okay? And so this is what goes on. Now, going over to chapter 11. Right now, we're coming to the point where we're in the middle of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. Okay. What we're told of from Daniel and what Jesus says, referring to Daniel, is that the Antichrist will rise up and he will bring peace to the area and peace to the world. You look at what's going on right now, peace is not a word that fits with what's happening, okay? And people are scared, and a lot of stuff is going on. And what we see in Daniel is that the Antichrist will rise to power, and he will make a treaty with Israel. One of those things is to rebuild the temple and allow sacrifices again. This is important because we already know that the Temple Institute in Jerusalem already has all the temple articles and utensils ready for the third temple. It's ready to roll, okay? Every so often, you may see where Temple Mount United tries to bring the cornerstone of the third temple up onto the uh, Temple Mount. And it always causes a riot. It's, it's just crazy. But a time will come where the Antichrist will make it to where the Jews can rebuild the temple. We've talked about how they've already got red heifers in Israel being monitored to make sure that they are pure, that they are completely red, not a white hair, a brown hair, or a black hair. And they're watching them. 
because once they are validated and vetted, they will be sacrificed so that they can purify the priesthood and everything pertaining to the temple. Okay, so these things are happening now. Am I saying that it's going to happen next week? No, but we need to keep our mind and our eyes open because this stuff is, it's not just something that we read about. It's happening. It's going on. And halfway through the tribulation, Daniel tells us, and Jesus talks about the abomination of desolations when the Antichrist will set up his image in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. All right? That will happen. And it's at that point that really all hell breaks loose, literally. It's just crazy. And that's at the point we're at here. One of the things going into it, there's the two witnesses. Chapter 11, verse, uh, uh, verse 1. And John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God. So we know this is, this is written in AD 90, okay? The temple is destroyed. It's gone, all right? So Vespasian's son Titus, he destroyed it in 70 AD. And so... Um, it's, we've got to have a third temple. It's got to be built again. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Just a little bit of trivia. People think that the Dome of the Rock is where the temple was. It very may be the temple of the, I mean, the Dome of the Spirits, which is a little, little shrine a little further north of the Dome of the Rock. This is important because it's the highest point that is bedrock. It's higher than the Dome of the Rock. You would always build the temple on the highest point that is still bedrock. If you build the temple there, everything southward is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, okay? It would explain why don't measure that part. Don't, that's not a part of the temple area. Another thing is the Dome of the Spirits is more in line with the Eastern Gate, which Jesus is supposed to come through when he returns. They're trying to find the... Uh, altar of the red heifer that was used to sacrifice the red heifer to purify the temple up on the Mount of Olives. Because if they can find that, and from there they can shoot a straight line through the eastern gate, they'll know where the temple was because you made a straight walk from that, that altar through the eastern gate up onto the temple mount to the temple itself. Okay. So these are the things that are being researched and looking into now. So we're in that second three and a half year period. And verse seven, we have these two, uh, we have these two uh, witnesses. And um, the things that they do very much resemble what Moses and Elijah did. So 
And it's a good chance that it's probably the two of them, the law and the prophets, bringing judgment upon Israel and upon the people, okay, and proclaiming the gospel of God. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The Antichrist is going to kill the two witnesses of God. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two, these two prophets have been tormenting those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud. So the Antichrist calls them, uh, kills them, and they're resurrected for all to see. When you have CNN, Fox News, and all that stuff, you can stream all over the place, the internet. People can watch this stuff. And they're going to be rejoicing and giving anti-Christmas presents, if you will, okay, celebrating this. And then the Lord will raise them from the dead and bring them up visibly into heaven. And it's going to blow people's minds. Going on, everybody following this? Okay, so how are we doing? All right, great, 19 minutes. Here we go. So chapter 12 goes into more detail about what happens during the uh, last three and a half years. Um, verse 7 talks about the war in heaven. Okay? A lot of people don't realize it, but Satan is in heaven. And demons are in heaven. Okay? We know that from Job. Satan's there. He's walking around. And God's saying, hey, you know, what have you been up to? Well, I've been walking around the earth and all. And and checking things out, and God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And we know what happens there, okay? But people think Satan's in hell, and the demons are in hell. They're not, okay? They are the princes and the principalities of the air. And they have access to heaven at this time. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us before the Lord day and night, just like he did with Job, all right? But Michael will lead the hosts of heaven against Satan and his minions. All right. Satan is not equal to God or to Jesus, not by a long shot. Okay. Satan and Michael are archangels, Lucifer and Michael. Okay. And those armies go at it. And of course, the armies of heaven, the armies of Michael win. And Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven to the earth at this point in time and Satan unleashes all of his wrath because as it says in verse 12 
Therefore, it says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows how the story ends. And when God throws him out of heaven, that last three and a half year period is going to be horrible. It's called the great tribulation, okay? We see in verse chapter 13, the Antichrist. Chapter 13, verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Well, we already know, you know, Michael and the angels just gave Satan and the the demons a wampum. And kicked him out of heaven, all right? But the world doesn't understand that. Or, and they want to follow the, the beast. And so going down to verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. This is the, the false prophet. Going down to uh, verse 14, um, or verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. So, we have the Antichrist, we have the false prophet motivating everybody to worship. And one of the motivating factors is if you want to buy or sell anything, you have to take the mark of the beast. Okay? And a lot of people are like, how's that going to work? Well, welcome to the modern age. Okay? Use your chip card, use your chip reader. Now, is that the mark of the beast? No. Okay? This is the hand or the forehead. All right? How about your phone? Just go ahead and put your phone on up and you can pay that way. Oh, but if you want to, you can get a chip under your skin and you can pay that way. Now, one of the things that I found out uh, while I was studying this is back in May, I believe, might have been March, President Biden issued an executive order to have the central bank, the treasury department, 
began to investigate what it would take to create what's known as the central bank digital currency to completely eradicate money as we have it, okay? So it would all be virtual. You would not have cash. You wouldn't have checks. You wouldn't really own your money, okay? Forbes, if you want to, you can go out and look online. Forbes did an article on it explaining it, Um, but it's the central bank digital currency. And if somebody wanted to shut off your account or investigate what you're putting your money into, no problem. This is the direction things are going. So if you want to control people, you control their pocketbook. You want to eat, you want to put food on the table, you want to put gas in your car, you want to go watch a show, you want to do anything, you have to take the mark of the beast. If you don't, you'll be killed. If you don't try to hide it, you won't be able to get by from day to day. That's where things are going. All right, and that's kind of freaky, but we're watching these things happen. The RFID chips, people get them in high security clearance areas to where they just walk past the scanner and it knows who they are and all of that, and boom, in they go. They can get in access into those areas. So we're living in a time where these things are not science fiction anymore. They're becoming more of a reality. Going on, okay, let's hop on over to chapter 19, verse 6. And these are more of the plagues and all that are poured out. But now we're coming to the marriage feast of the Lamb, okay? Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, did you get this? It says, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Did you catch that? Okay. Made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember how Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Okay. I think this gives us a glimpse. Our wedding gowns Guys, that's really weird, okay? But our wedding dresses, okay, are going to be fashioned from our righteous deeds. We're not talking about getting salvation, okay? But we clothe ourselves by what we do for the Lord, okay? We are told to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, How do you store up treasures in heaven? You do things for the Lord and with the Lord. And we are rewarded by the Lord for that, okay? So that's just a reminder. We need to live with eternity in mind. And it's like, how am I going to look 
you know, what's my wedding clothes going to look like? Full of holes? Missing a sleeve? Missing a pant leg? You know, just a pair of shorts? You know, it's like, boy, I didn't have much to work with there. What are we living for? And then after the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 16. His robe, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he brings the hosts of heaven back at the end of the seven year period. And it is time for... The Battle of Armageddon, that's in the Valley of Megiddo, Har Megiddon, the Mount of Megiddo, okay? And the armies rise up against the Lord. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in its presence and who had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a very short battle as Jesus comes down and just cleans house, Okay. Then chapter 20, we have the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial reign, okay? Satan is bound and he's thrown into the pit for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand year period, verse five, it says, uh, um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, Then there's the first resurrection and those who have died that are believers, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, okay? Those who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation and with Jesus. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Then Satan is released, He incites rebellion with the nations again. They rise up against the Lord. Jesus just wipes it all out, one fell swoop. And that's the end of the story. Then the great white throne of judgment and the sea will give up the dead and the graves will give up the dead and all of the unrighteous will stand before the great white throne of judgment They will stand before Christ himself and they will be judged and they will be cast into the lake of fire along with the devil, death, Hades, and they're cast in forever. Okay, the final judgment. 
Then we have the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that comes down. And we have a story here of a life that is just absolutely perfect. God sets everything right at the end of it all. Now, verse 18 of chapter 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And then at the end of this, there is an invitation to come. An altar call, if you will, come to Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, wait, I screwed up. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, verse 17 is before then. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the waters of life without price. Then down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That means quickly. All right. So when he comes, it's going to be very rapid successions. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The desire of the Lord is to save people. We've seen in Scripture, in Ezekiel twice, he cries out and he says, I desire that none perish. I do not want to cause anyone to face my wrath. I wish people would come to repentance. We saw as we studied in, in, uh, with Peter the Lord desires that none perish, but that all come to repentance. His heart is for the lost. His heart is for people. He designed us to be in fellowship with him. But a day is coming when he will judge the world. And as we look at this world that we're in, and it's just going crazier and crazier, it's like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. That's what it means. Come quickly. Maranatha. I have a friend, he talks about when is Jesus bringing the short bus? When is Jesus going to pull up, throw the door open, and say, come on, gang, get on, we're going home. We need to live with a readiness to see Christ, to be with Christ. We need to be storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We need to be working on our bridal gown, you know? We need to have these things ready because we may not get raptured. I may die. I may get hit by a car or something like that. Am I ready to see Jesus Christ? Because there's no do-overs. What I do now is going to carry over with me into eternity. And if you're here today, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've gone to church all your life. 
and you've been told, hey, if you're a member of the church, boy, you're in good standing with God. No, you're not. If you're a member of the body of Christ, sealed by the blood of Christ, then you are. Just because we grow up in church or members of churches or know the Bible doesn't get us into heaven. It's by receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, giving our life to him, confessing our sin, and confessing that he is God, and entrusting our life and our internal life to him. That is how we are saved. So if you're here this morning and you have not said, Jesus, I surrender my life to you, you're my king, my Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need salvation by your blood and the cross. If you've not done that, talk to me afterwards. We'll pray. I can answer some questions. But there's no going back. When it's done, it's done. Let us live in readiness to see our Savior, okay? And watch the things that happen in the world around us through the lens of Scripture, okay? We don't want to get freaky and paranoid or anything like that. Don't go there. But just be thinking. Be prayerful. Lord, what's going on here? So that we may be ready. When we see these things happen, Jesus says, know that summer is near. Know that the end is near. Okay? And the beauty of it is, not that we win. Christ has won. And we have won. What can you do to people who are already victorious? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us. No matter what happens in this world, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that is a wonderful thing. And I can't wait to go home. You know, every day, it's like, man, I want to go home. One day, one day we'll go. Via the rapture or by death, we'll go. And what a day it'll be.